Lord, pray for us once more. Father, now that your word has been read, we do ask for your spirit to come and to teach us, to exercise and to uh, use the power of illumination to give us understanding, to give us willing hearts to listen and obey. Do this, O oh Lord, for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've entered into a season in the Christian calendar that we call Advent, which is all about the arrival of Christ, because that is what the word Advent means. It means arrival or coming. And so when we celebrate Advent, what we're doing is we're thinking back to the first arrival of Christ, where he drew near to us, he became like us in order to bear our sins on the cross. And at the same time, we're also looking forward to the second arrival of Christ, where he appears not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This year, we're going to celebrate Advent and prepare our hearts for Christmas by listening to God from the book of Hebrews. We're obviously not going to cover the whole book, uh, since Advent only spans four Sundays. And so what we're going to do instead is to just focus on the main theme of the book of Hebrews, which can be summed up with one word, the word better. The author of Hebrews is introducing to his readers something better, better than they hoped for, better than they expected, better than they even thought possible. That word is a word he uses constantly throughout the letter. I, I counted up to 13 instances of this Greek word, which is sometimes translated as superior, but more often throughout the letter it's the word better. And so the first instance is in verse 4 of chapter 1. There he describes Jesus as superior to or better than the angels. We're going to be looking at that in particular today. But if you keep on reading, you'll come across promises of better things, a better hope, a better covenant enacted on better promises, better sacrifices, a better possession, a better country, a better resurrection life, and blood that speaks a better word. And all of this talk about something better really just boils down to the fundamental belief that Jesus is better. The very person of Christ, the very finished work of Christ on the cross is better than anything that has ever come before and anything that is ever going to follow. Jesus is better. And that's why we're calling our Advent series by the same title. This morning in our text in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 4, I want to show you how Jesus and his message is so much better than any other messenger and any other message that has come before or will come after. The gospel of Christ is just so much better. And that, my friends, is why we cannot Neglect it. We can't ignore it. We have to pay much closer attention to it. That's what the author of Hebrews felt compelled to say to his own readers in chapter 2, verse 1. After arguing in chapter 1 for the superiority of Christ over the prophets and over the angels through whom God gave to us the Old Testament law, he goes on to say, in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
You see, it's believed that the author was writing to Christians that he believed were in danger of drifting away from Christ and his message. Many think that he was writing to Jewish believers who had um, been, who, who were being at this time persecuted for their newfound Christian faith. You have to understand that in many of the major Roman cities of the day, there were laws in place giving religious freedom to Jews, but those laws were not extended to this new sect that was growing called Christianity. And so there was a growing pressure to revert back to Judaism and to, to rejoin the Jewish community. There, there was every incentive to neglect the gospel, to drift away from the sun, to go back into a religion that was safe and, and, and culturally accepted. And so that's, that's why the author is so intent on proving that Jesus and, and the gospel that he brings is so much better than what you received from the angels, from what you got from Moses, or whatever was mediated by the priests in the temples with all the sacrifices. Jesus is better. And so why, why would you revert to that which is inferior if you already received what's superior? That's his question to his readers. And church, the same, the same could be asked of us. We've been given the greatest gift in all the world, and yet, and yet it's so easy to neglect it, to take it for granted, to, to give all of our attention to, to, to trivial things. I mean, just consider this season that we're in, this Christmas season. Why, why would we revert all of our time and attention to the busyness of holiday shopping and holiday traveling and holiday feasting. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's anything bad in those things in and of themselves, but we do give an inordinate amount of time and attention to pursuits that simply pale in comparison to, to the Son of God to his gospel, which is really what this season is all about. And so that's why I think this exhortation found in Hebrews 2, verse 1, equally applies to us. We, today, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So that's what I want to help you do this morning. I, I want to direct your attention to three betters found in our text. Whether or not whether or not you are convinced there is a God, whether or not you are convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, I hope this morning to demonstrate that the God revealed in Scripture is so much better than what you even imagined. He surpasses expectations. So we're going to consider three things. We're going to consider a better God, the better messenger, and the better message. If you want to follow along, there's an outline in your bulletin. I want to begin by demonstrating that there is no better God than the God of the Bible. I, I think we often take God for granted. We don't realize just how good we have it, how good it is to have a God like the God of Scripture. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to start reading that again. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke. Now let's stop. Let's stop right there. 
And let's not move past that too quickly. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks. And that, that is amazing. Do you realize how good that is? God speaks. Now, I, I, I realize that not everyone is going to agree that is good. In fact, I would argue that most people, most people would actually be afraid of a speaking God. Most people would much rather prefer a mute God, a God that is made of wood or of stone, that doesn't talk. Uh, a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago, I, I traveled abroad and, and I visited some eastern temples, eastern temples filled with, with frightening statues in the form of dragons or some sort of monster or these ghoulish beings, and I was I was taken aback, and I was surprised to see so many worshipers prostrating themselves before these scary-looking gods, and I couldn't understand the appeal. I mean, it, it, doesn't that frighten them? Aren't they scared? I didn't get it. But now, I think I do. Now I realize that a speaking God actually scares people even more. A silent God is much more appealing, even if it's a creepy-looking God, because the creepy God of stone can't talk back. A God who speaks, well, that's a God who could challenge you, who could correct you, who could command you. He, he could disagree with your values. He could take issue with your life choices. A statue, on the other hand, it might be creepy looking, but at least it won't talk back. At least it won't say anything to upset you. It won't judge you. It'll remain perfectly silent, just the way you like it. A silent God is very appealing. Now, I, I realize as well that, that most of our non-Christian friends and colleagues they're not bowing down to, to actual statues. I mean, maybe we, we do have some friends that do that, but for the most part, no one has statues at home or, or goes someplace to, to bow down to statues. But I, I do think, I do think a subconscious fear of a speaking God still haunts many of our friends and likely explains their resistance to embrace Christianity. Among the non-believers that we know, most would fall under one of two categories. They're either secularists or spiritualists. The secularist is the one who says there is no God, or if there is, he's unknowable. You can prove scientific facts, you can prove natural laws, but you can't prove that God exists. You can't prove that there are moral absolutes out there defining what is ultimately right or wrong. That's the worldview. That's the thinking of the secularist. But then you have the spiritualist. He's the one who's not searching for God out there, but in here, within. The spiritualist would argue that, in a sense, we're all gods. That is, we're all capable of forming our own absolutes, our own standards of right and wrong. And so you got one view that says there is no God. The other view says, God is in you. Those are very different conceptions, but both 
if you think about it, in the end, are the same. Because both are saying that when you get up in the morning, you have nobody to obey. There is no one speaking to you, telling you what to do with your life. You, you determine that for yourself. That, I, I would argue, is the modern-day equivalent of bowing down to a god of stone who remains perfectly silent. You figure it out yourself. You define reality for yourself. And so the challenge, my friends, is to help people understand that even though a silent God sounds appealing, deep down, deep down, you won't be satisfied. It's not what you really want. Rejecting all absolutes, throwing off all authority, that is not how you were made. You were created in the image of God to live under his loving authority, to listen to and, and, and to do his good word. That is what you were made for. That's how you tick. The alternative is really not all that attractive in the end. I mean, just put yourself, put yourself in the shoes of Israel's pagan neighbors. Those nations, they, they only had silent gods, gods of, of wood and stone for them to turn to. You think they were satisfied? No. They were jealous of Israel. Israel had a God who actually speaks to his people, a God who clearly reveals his will in writing, in a book. He tells you, what you, what, what you can do to please him. He tells you what you could do to grieve him. And he tells you that if you do grieve him through disobedience, here's how you can exactly, here's what you can exactly do to, to be forgiven and to be restored. The pagan neighbors of ancient Israel would have loved to have that kind of clarity, to have God's will in writing. No one wants to live in the dark. No one wants to, to go just making things up as you go, you know, guessing and groping, wondering and worrying if maybe I pleased God today or maybe I upset him. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what is his will. That is an untenable position. Something is going to give. And that's probably why many conclude in the end that Maybe there is no God. Or maybe, maybe I'm God. And they start coming up with their own version of what's right and wrong and what's absolute and, what's, and, and, and how I'm going to live my life. And so the point I'm trying to make, friends, is, is that you're selling yourself short if your God is not a speaking God like the God that we find in the Bible. There is no better God than this one. I understand a speaking God can be scary, but I don't think, I don't think it's just because he speaks. I think he's scary because deep down, we don't fully trust this God. We're not sure if he's good and if what he speaks is good for us. We question the goodness and, and the mercy of his commands, of his moral absolutes, of, 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 of that which he intends to hold us to. And so what we've got to do is we've got to press further. 
We've got to dig deeper into our text to learn more about this God. And we're told right there in verse 2 that to do that, to know this God, we've got to listen to his son. His son is presented to us as a better messenger than the prophets and the angels that God used to speak through in the Old Testament times. This, friends, is our second better. There is no better messenger No better messenger in revealing God than his own son. Let's let's read verses 1 to 2 again. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, when the author says last days, oh, actually, I'm sorry, when he says long ago, What he's referring to there is to the entire span of Old Testament history. So before Christ, God spoke primarily through human and angelic messengers. The human ones are the ones we call prophets. They had the responsibility of of speaking for God to his people. And then there were angels. They also functioned as messengers from God to God's people. And the obvious examples of these angels uh, as messengers would be, of course, the ones found in the Christmas story. You have Gabriel visiting Mary. You have the angels visiting the, the shepherds out in the fields of Bethlehem. But in our text, the emphasis here on angelic messengers centers really on the message of the law that they delivered. We're actually told in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This is Stephen uh, uh, teaching us um, that an angel, there was actually an angel on Mount Sinai delivering the law to Moses. So God gave Moses the law, but he used an angel to communicate that. And so later on, if you look in chapter 2, verse 2, later on when, when it refers to a message declared by angels that proved to be reliable, just Take note, that's mainly referring to the law. Now, we know that the entirety of the Old Testament is often described simply as the law and the prophets. And so the point here, the point that's being made is that God spoke the entire Old Testament through these messengers, through prophets and angels. But now, now, He is doing something different. Look back at verse 2. God is doing something different in these last days. Now, now that right there, last days, is not referring narrowly to to the end times, to, to the days right before Jesus returns. It's really referring to an indefinite age that began with the coming of Christ, extends into our day, and will one day culminate in the second advent and the start of a new age, the age of a new heaven and a new earth. So if you see you know, a, a man with a sandwich board out on the streets, you, you, you hear a, a doomsday preacher talking about how we're living in the last days, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I would just simply add that Christians have always been living in the last days. The last days began in the time of Christ. 
And so if we are still in the last days, if that applies still for us today, then verse 2 implies that God is still speaking in the exact same way. He is still speaking now, right now, through the Son. That means there are no other messengers to turn to. There's no one coming after Jesus. He's the final messenger, the final prophet. He has the final word. And this is why the author is surprised that his audience, remember, they're Christians from a Jewish background, he is surprised why they would be tempted to drift away from the gospel and to revert back to Judaism and and the Old Testament law. If, If you now, right now, have a superior message from a superior messenger, why would you return to something that is inferior? So let's consider some ways. Let's consider some ways that the Son of God is superior to the prophets and angels. Now just think with me. If you want to know God, if you want to know his heart, you want to know his will, but, you, but if you couldn't speak to him yourself, then, then who better to speak for God than his only begotten son? Who better to turn to than his heir? In verse 2, it says the Son is the one whom God appointed heir of all things. Imagine with me if you were back in the Victorian era and you you visited Downton Abbey or, you know, one of those those big homes back then, and if you call upon the master of the house, and if he's not home, who would you prefer to speak to? If you had a request for him, who would know his will the best? Who who would have the authority to speak on his behalf? Would you prefer one of his servants, a valet, a butler, a maid? Or would you prefer to speak to the master's eldest son, to the heir apparent? If you notice with me, notice in verse 7, notice how angels are described. Angels are described in verse 7 as God's ministers, or other translations, his servants. They're like butlers. They're like maids. But in, you notice with me, verses 5 to 6, look in verses 5 to 6, Jesus is described as God's begotten son, his firstborn, his heir. And so if you want to know God, if you want to know his heart, you want to know his will, then you have a far better messenger in the Son than in anyone else, human or angelic. Now, you know, I realize that this emphasis on Jesus being the Son, the firstborn, the heir of God, it could lead to dangerous, damnable error if we're not careful, if we imagine them as two separate beings. And that's why, if you go back to verse 2, the author is quick, he's very quick to affirm the Son's oneness with God as creator. He goes on to say, through whom also he created the world. So the Son was with the Father there in the beginning. When God spoke in Genesis 1, the Son, the Word, created. If you read on in verse 3, it says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Again, that is stressing their oneness. The sun radiates the glory of God like sunbeams radiate 
the glory of the sun in the sky. What, do you realize, do you realize when you look at a sunset, you're not actually seeing the sun. What you see are sunbeams that have radiated from the sun, traveling at the speed of light. And I, I read that it takes eight minutes and 31 seconds for those beams to travel to earth. And so you're not actually looking at the sun. What you're looking at are sunbeams that have left the sun eight minutes and 31 seconds ago. The sunbeam and the sun, they're distinct, but they're not different. They're still one. And if not for the sunbeam, if it was not for the beams, you would never be able to see the sun. Now, in the same way, the sun, the S-O-N, is the radiance of the Father. When you look to God, you don't actually see the Father, but you see the Son who was sent from the Father to show us the Father. That's what it means for the Son to radiate the glory of God. He radiates the Father. If you keep on reading in verse 3, it continues to emphasize their unity. It says the Son is the exact imprint of God's nature. The imagery here is, is of a stamp embossing its, its image onto uh, a coin, embossing an exact imprint. And so, so the image on the coin is a perfect picture of the image on the stamp. The point here is to say that everything in God is found exactly in the sun. There is no difference. There is no deficiency between the two. Verse 3 goes on to say that the Son is the powerful upholder of just really everything. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But it's not like he's, it's not like the mighty Atlas who, who upholds the universe like a dead weight just, just sitting there. No, this word, uphold, conveys a sense of, of carrying something along. And so the Son of God is carrying us along towards a goal with a purpose. And that goal is hinted for us at the end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son of God had a goal. He had a reason to be born. I mean, just think of that. How many of us can say that we had a reason to be born, that we had a goal in mind? I mean, no. Birth just happened to us. We had no say in it. We had no purpose for it. But Jesus did. Jesus had a goal. He came for sins. He came to make purification for sins, our sins. It later on goes to say in, in, in chapter 9, verse 26, that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Friends, all of the brokenness that you experience, 
All the pain that you suffer, all the guilt and shame that you feel is a result of sin in this world. It's a result of sin in each of our own hearts. Sin at its root is a rejection of God's good rule. It is a throwing off of his loving authority. It's, sin, is, sin is basically closing your ears to a speaking God, pretending like he's silent, and trying to live like you are your own authority. Such an attitude drives a wedge in our relationship with God. For our sins, we are put away from his holy presence. But, but for our salvation, Jesus appeared in his first advent to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, by the, by, by the putting away of his own glory, the putting away of his own honor, the putting away of, of his own comfort and safety. He put it away for us. This is why, friends, this is why you can trust the speaking God of the Bible to be a good God. You can trust that what he speaks is good. It's good for you. Yes, he does speak a, a word of judgment against your sins, but he also speaks a word of mercy, a word of pardon, promising to put away your sins if you put yourself in his hands. If you trust the Son, he will bring you back to his Father. For this, for what he accomplished, Jesus has inherited a name that is more excellent than angels, a name that is above every name, He was highly exalted. He was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we are told his enemies have become a footstool for his feet. This is Jesus. And we are reminded in in verse 13, if you look there, that, that no angel, not even the highest archangel, is seated at God's right hand. That is an honor, that is a seat reserved for the Son of God alone. According to verse 6, it it says there, let all God's angels worship him. And so the job of an angel is to be a worshiper, but the job of the Son is to receive worship. And if you look according to verses 7 and 9, The job of the angel is to minister, is to serve within the royal court of God. But the job of the son is to rule, sitting on the throne in that court, holding on to the scepter of uprightness. According to verse 14, the job of the angel is to minister to the saved. But the job of the son is to be the savior himself. And so if the son is superior in every way, on every level, compared to the angels of God or compared to the prophets of old, then you have got to pay much, much closer attention to what he has to say, to the message that he has to bring. That's the transition to Hebrews chapter 2. That's the transition to our final point. If there is no better messenger than the Son of God, then there is no better message. No better message to heed and obey than the one that he brings. Let me just trace this whole argument with me. 
Hebrews 1 argues for the superiority of the Son who speaks the message of the gospel over that of the prophets and angels who speak the message of the Old Testament law. And now, therefore, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Now, I personally don't think that many of us are in danger of outright rejecting the gospel, denying its truthfulness, abandoning the faith. But I do believe that many of us are in danger of slowly, subtly, unconsciously drifting away from the gospel. And that's when we take it for granted. We assume we already learned it. We heard it, we believed it when we got saved, and so we want to move on. We want to move on to more advanced Christianity. It's tempting for, for Christians, especially those who grew up in Christian homes and Christian churches, to tune out preachers when they get to the part in the sermon about Jesus taking on flesh, Jesus dying for our sins, rising again to give us hope of eternal life. Or they groan when, when, when they... When they when they see it, it's another Advent series, another Easter series. Man, why do we keep going back to the basics all the time? But that's the problem. That's the problem. We assume that the gospel message is just the basics. It's elementary. It's, it's for lost people. It's, it's for seekers to learn. But did you notice here, the author is speaking to Christians telling them to pay much closer attention to the gospel that they already know and believe. That word for pay attention, that word can even carry the connotation of being obsessed or addicted to that something. Uh, the word is also found, I found this so interesting, it's also found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, and that's where it tells when it says that deacons, if you're looking for deacons, they must not be addicted to much wine. That's the same word. They must not pay attention to much wine. So what's your attitude? What is your attitude towards the gospel? Could it be said of you that you're addicted to it? Are you obsessed with it? Or are you giving it much attention at all? Have you, have you taken it for granted? Are you ready to move on? To go to something more advanced? Well, Christian, Christian, just realize that you will never graduate from the gospel. Every time, every time you go digging into this message of God's grace centered on the life death and resurrection of his son, I promise you every time you will find more gems. You will never exhaust the gospel. I've heard it said before that the gospel message is shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough to drown an elephant. So don't ever stop preaching and applying the gospel to yourself, to your heart, to your life. You can't get enough of it. Look back with me at chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Let me read that. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Notice there how the author of Hebrews is not trying to pit the gospel against the law. He's not trying to pit the message of the Son against the message of angels. No, he does affirm that the law that was declared by angels proved to be true and reliable. If you disobeyed the law, there was just retribution. There were consequences. God never reneged his law. He never relaxed his law. The law is reliable. And so his point is this, if neglect of the law reliably resulted in punishment, then how much more neglect of the gospel? How much worse would it be if you were to neglect the superior message of the superior son? Be warned, you won't escape. And why why is this the case? Why is it so much worse to neglect the son? It's because, it's because his whole point here is that the son is not just another in a whole long line of messengers. He, in fact, is the one that all the messengers were speaking about. Jesus is the message. He's the last message. He's the final word. So if you neglect him, there's no one coming after to offer you another option. There's no one coming after to offer another way of salvation. I think the problem is when we see Jesus as merely offering us one way to God, and then you try to compare his way to to other ways. But the point of our passage, and really the point of Christmas, is that Jesus is God. The gospel message is not about telling you how to find God. The gospel is saying that God has come to find you in the person of Christ. So have you been found by God? Have you been saved by Christ? If you're not sure, then listen carefully. Today, If you hear his voice, if you hear his call, do not harden your hearts, but open them. Open them to receive his grace. Open your hearts to receive Christ. Do not neglect his great salvation. Receive it by faith. If you're not sure how to do that, you're not sure how to pray to God asking for that, come find me afterwards. Come to some of the the, the prayer team members afterwards. Ask them, how can I be able to to receive Jesus? Please, please don't, don't, if God is calling you, don't leave. Don't leave this place without responding. Don't neglect this great salvation. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, but calling us out of darkness and giving us your very words through your very son. It's in his name we pray, amen.